Well, welcome back to Base Camp. Now, I know it's been a while as we were taking some time off during summer to enjoy those amazing summer days, but now that we are back to school and the leaves are beginning to change and we're getting back into some of our normal rhythms, we wanted to pick back up on our studies that we started right here on Base Camp. So in this episode, we're picking back up on our systematic theology study, and we'll be wrapping up our study on the person and work of God the Spirit. Now, if you missed our previous episodes, I'll include them in the show notes so that you can check those out, either putting this one on pause and coming back to it after you've listened to those other two or or hitting them up afterwards. This is kind of like a a choose-your-own-adventure. But if you're still listening to my voice and ready to dive into this episode of Basecamp, we're going to be covering the topic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So, with no further ado... Let's dive in. Now, in The Italian Job, that wonderful movie from like 20 years ago that popularized Mini Coopers, there's this moment near the end of the heist where the computer geek of the group, a guy named Lyle, is in a train station, and he's using their Wi-Fi in order to help run the operations. And when everything is completed, he exuberantly shouts for joy so loudly that he startles everyone around him. In a response, the first thing he says is, I got the Holy Spirit. You should get on it. It's a good train. And I mention that not not because I love the movie, uh, The Italian Job, though I do, uh, but, but it's because Lyle isn't too far away from how most people think about what it means to be baptized by the Spirit. But is that what the Bible teaches about being baptized by the Spirit? What does this vocabulary even mean? Does it mean that, that we will, as a result of this baptism of the Spirit, speak in tongues? And if you haven't spoken in tongues, does that, does that mean you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit? Better yet, here's the question that we aren't asking but should be. Are there two tiers of Christianity? Are there those who have experienced this special experience of a baptism by the Holy Spirit and then... And then maybe the rest of us who, who are spiritually deficient or deformed or, or who maybe aren't as godly because we don't have the same experience as someone else? It, it, really, are, are, are we doomed to live maybe a subpar Christian life? Is, is the Pentecostal TV preacher on the Miracle Channel, is he right? Is there a victorious Christian life out there that you aren't experiencing, that you could be if only you have this one experience? Because then you'd finally feel emotional and passionate about Jesus and see miracles and health and prosperity in your life. We're going to be talking about a lot of that in this episode. But, but if you're looking at some, maybe some older systematic theology textbooks or, or back at the Reformers and Catechisms, you won't see too much about this topic of being baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit in what, in what theologians call the order of salvation or the study of the various steps in which the benefits of salvation are applied into our lives. And that's because, as Wayne Grudem explains, with the spread of Pentecostalism that began in 1901, the the widespread influence of the charismatic movement in the 1960s and 70s, and and the remarkable growth of Pentecostals and charismatic churches worldwide from 1970 to even today— there is this question that arises that has not been uh, as as prevalent in a lot of church history, and it's what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and is it distinct from regeneration or, or becoming a Christian? And this whole conversation has come into increasing prominence, especially in our city since about the 60s. And so to set the table in our discussion, let, let's begin by examining the positions that Pentecostals hold in regards to this discussion. So there's two main claims. The first claim is this, is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is ordinarily an event following conversion, so so that it happens after someone becomes a Christian. That there's this experience that brought great blessing into their lives and has made their, their Bible study more meaningful and effective, their joy in worship has just expounded greatly, and, and this experience has left them with new spiritual gifts that they didn't have beforehand. So, so that's claim number one. This, this baptism in the Holy Spirit, it, it happened after conversion, and it's brought great blessing into their lives. That, that's claim number one. The second claim, it, number two, is 
that this baptism in the Holy Spirit is made evident by the sign of speaking in tongues. Thus, thus they know that, that they have experienced the second blessing because they spoke in tongues, just like the Christians experienced in the book of Acts, they say. And I don't mention these two positions because I want to make fun of them or because I think they're silly. In fact, this is just a lot of the, the warp and the woof of a lot of the conversations in our own city about what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so there might be a lot of confusion in our lives, especially when we look at the Bible and we see these kinds of things happening in the book of Acts. And, and so we might not even know what to do. And so I mentioned these two positions from the kind of the classical Pentecostal view because these claims are really important. Uh, they, they say a lot of, of things uh, that we need to engage with specifically in our culture. Now, I, I want to also be really fair as we're beginning to critique this view because if we are just reading through the book of Acts, you might see one or both of these claims and think, well, they make sense. I mean, you read in the book of Acts and you see, if you're reading through, like, okay, so there are these Christians, these disciples of Jesus, after their conversion, Pentecost happens, so they're filled with the Spirit, and then they have the gift of tongues, and, and, and they, they have all this power for ministry. So maybe that's to be expected today. Maybe this is... This is what we should experience as Christians. Some people would even say that you must or else you're not a Christian or that there's these two tiers of Christians. Now, I, I want us to look actually at the book of Acts. Um, but right before that, actually, let's look at the book of John. John chapter 20, um, just to show you that these guys were Christians uh, before uh, the book of Acts. So uh, if you look with me at John chapter 20 in this chapter, um, we have John explaining how Jesus, uh, he first is appearing to the disciples after he rose from the dead, right? He, he gets through this locked door of the room that the, all the men were in and we find him standing there and he shows them his hands and his side. And, and it's there where Jesus commissions them, right? As the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That's where we have the great commission given in the book of John. Thomas is absent for this, uh, but nevertheless, Jesus commissions them, uh, the, the uh, disciples to be sent into the world. And then uh, he tells them, or sorry, then Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so we know before the day of Pentecost, before we get to the book of Acts, these men are, are Christians. Jesus then told them, how, however, not to leave Jerusalem nor to head out onto this great commission just yet. Don't, don't get sent out yet, but to wait, wait for the promise of the Father. And then we, we see the book of Acts open and, and we see, as Luke records us, the disciples um, are, are there and, and we see in in. Acts chapter 2, we're at Acts 1, 4, and 5. Jesus says, wait, and you'll be baptized with the Spirit. So they, they do what Jesus commanded them to do. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we see clearly the day of Pentecost comes and tongues of fire rest above their heads, which, as we're coming out of the book of Genesis and Exodus, it, that just casts our minds right back to the Old Testament. And we remember the holy working of God in the midst of his people. And we see in this crazy, wonderful, promised event in Acts chapter 2, a reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? Tower of Babel, uh, they are disobedient and God uh, gives languages that separate them. Here, Acts chapter two, these men are filled with the Holy Spirit. They can speak in other tongues, other languages. Now, this was either the ability to speak in all these various different languages of all the people there or some sort of understanding in the various languages at the exact same time. So if I'm speaking to you in English, you can all hear me in different languages. Either way, a crazy miracle occurs on this day of Pentecost as these Christians are baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. And we again, again, we see this is after conversion and it's resulting in greater empowerment for ministry as well as speaking in other discernible languages. In fact, the response to this wild event in Acts chapter 2 is, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, that'll be really important in this whole discussion as well on what is tongues and what does it mean to speak in tongues, but that's for a different conversation, a different day. Um, but uh, sideline, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. So just store that away. Uh, so, so we know this isn't heavenly languages or indiscernible languages or ecstatic utterances, but discernible languages that actual people really speak and understand, and it's for gospel proclamation. 
and that others might hear the good news of the gospel in other languages, which is interesting. But, but if, we, if we go back and we, we trace the storyline then of Acts chapter 2, we trace the storyline of the book of Acts, we see the same kind of activity happening as the gospel continues to go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 8, right, the people of Samaria become Christians as they believe Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they are baptized, both men and women. We see that in Acts chapter 8, 12. And then when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they send Peter and John, the apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, we read, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, uh, for they had, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid hands on these men and women, and they received the Holy Spirit, Acts 8, 14 to 17. Then in Acts chapter 19, Paul came and found some disciples at Ephesus. And Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, well, into then what, like, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people uh, to, to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there's, there's about 12 men in all. So as you're just reading through the book of Acts, you might, you might be confused. Right? You're looking at the biblical evidence. You're, you're hearing Pentecostals explain that being baptized in the Holy Spirit was a common occurrence for New Testament Christians and should be common for us today. You, you become a Christian, and then at another time, you, you have this baptism happen to you. See, look at the book of Acts. But, but it, is that what's happening in the book of Acts? And it, Wayne Grudem, in analyzing this Pentecostal argument from the Bible, he asks three really helpful questions in, in helping assess this view. First question is this. He asks, what does the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, what does that mean in the New Testament? How is that phrase used in the New Testament? Because however it's used in the New Testament is how we ought to use it, right? We don't want to just give new meanings to words in the Bible. So what does that phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, what does that mean in the New Testament? So we're going to talk about that. Secondly, how should we understand the second experiences that came to born-again believers in the book of Acts? And then thirdly, are there... Other biblical expressions, such as being filled with the Holy Spirit or filling with the Holy Spirit, that are better suited to describe an empowering with the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion. So we're going to follow that outline and tackle these questions. So first up, what exactly does baptism in the Holy Spirit mean in the New Testament? Well, if you were to look up this phrase, there are only seven passages in the New Testament where we read of someone being baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. So there's only seven. The first four, so the majority of them, are uh, references, and they are found on the lips of John the Baptist, who's talking about Jesus and how Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. So those are Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, Mark chapter 1, verse 8, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, and John chapter 1, verse 33. And it's really difficult to draw any conclusions from these passages for what is actually being said here, what it actually means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, other than it is Jesus who will carry out this baptism and he will baptize his followers. Now, the other two passages, numbers five and six of our seven, they refer directly to Pentecost. They, they are Acts chapter one, verse five, where Jesus says, John baptized with water, but before many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, it's even just rehashing what John said. And then Acts eleven sixteen, we see Peter refer back to Jesus's words in Acts 1, 5. So those two passages, number uh, five and six, they show us that whatever we may understand baptism in the Holy Spirit to be, it certainly happened at the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit fell in great power on the disciples and those who were with them and they spoke in other languages or tongues and then 3,000 people were converted to Christ as they were cut to the heart and repented of their sins and were baptized. Now, it's also important to realize that all six of these verses use almost the exact same expression in the Greek, with the only differences being some variation in the word order or the verb tense that fits the sentence. And with one example having the preposition understood rather than expressly, uh, explicitly said. 
So the only other reference, so our seventh one, remaining in the New Testament, so outside of the Gospels in the book of Acts, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which says, For we were all baptized in one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So in the Greek text, this, this expression is almost identical to what we've seen in the other six verses. Uh, the other six times this phrase, baptism in the Spirit, happens in the Bible, except with one small difference, as Paul refers to one Spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. But all the other elements are the same. Baptizo is that, that word uh, that, that means uh, to, to baptize, uh, to go under the water, come back up. Uh, and the prepositional phrase contains the exact same words. And this has a really significant implication for us because it means that as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, baptism in the Holy Spirit occurred at conversion. He says that all the Corinthians were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the result was they became members of the body of Christ. He says, for we were all baptized in one spirit into one body. Thus, baptism in the Holy Spirit must refer to the activity of the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of the Christian life when he gives us new spiritual life in regeneration and cleanses us and gives us a clear break with the power and love of sin, which is the very first initial stage of our sanctification, our growth in Christ. In this way, baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to all that the Holy Spirit does at the beginning of our Christian life. See, we, we have to realize that, that the day of Pentecost is much more than just an individual event in the lives of Jesus' disciples and those with them. See, see the, the day of Pentecost uh, was m- much more than that. It, it, the, the day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament, right? His fingerprints are everywhere from Genesis 1-2 as he hovered over the waters on the first day of creation. And then as we even learned in the book of Exodus, that he empowered people for service to God in the tabernacle days, uh, as well as empowering people for leadership and then giving prophecy, right? As the prophets were led along by the Spirit to say everything that they said. But in the Old Testament days, the work of the Spirit was different than now in the New Covenant age, right? The days from Pentecost and onwards. In fact, we are told as much, and the prophets prepared us for these coming days where the Spirit would actually indwell and work in the midst of all of God's people. So in the Old Testament, right, the the Spirit came to a few people with significant power for ministry. But Moses, remember, he, he longed for the day when the Spirit would be poured out on all people, right? We see that in Numbers 11, 29, where he says, oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. I can imagine him pastoring and trying to to lead uh, the Israelites. Just, man, just like, oh, would that the Lord put his spirit on them. Would that they were all prophets. And and the equipping of the Holy Spirit for special ministries, right, we we know from the Old Testament, it could be lost, right? That's, That's what we saw happen with Saul, King Saul, as the spirit left him. And that was something that David was even fearful would happen in his own life, as we read in Psalm 51, 11. And in terms of of spiritual power in the lives of God's people, there was little power over the dominion of Satan, right, resulting in very little effective evangelism of the nations around Israel. And and there was no examples of of the ability to cast out demons. Now, also in the Old Covenant, the Spirit was almost completely confined to the nation of Israel. And yet now, in the New Covenant age, everything is different, right? That there is a a, a created a new dwelling place of God, Ephesians 2.22, 2.22, the life of the believer and the church here, which, which united both Gentiles and Jews in the body of Christ. I mean, when the New Testament opens, isn't that what we see in the life of Jesus? That's a stark contrast, the, the power of the Spirit at work, right? As the Holy Spirit descends on him at his baptism, Luke 3, 21 to 22, and after his temptation, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, Luke 4, 14. Then we begin to see what this new covenant power of the Holy Spirit will look like. Right? Jesus casts out demons with a word. He heals everyone who's brought to him. He teaches with authority that no one's ever seen before. And the disciples have little tastes of this, but they don't have the full new covenant empowering for ministry until the day of Pentecost. 
that was the marked transition point in the lives of the disciples and in history of, of the Spirit's work in the world around us. It, it was the promise of God given through Joel that the Holy Spirit would come in new covenant fullness. And the result in the disciples' lives was this powerful new covenant experience of the Spirit working in their lives as they received much greater power to live the Christian life and to carry out Christian ministry as they had more effectiveness in their witness and in their ministry, right? And a greater power for victory over the influence of sin in the lives of all believers and power for victory over Satan and demonic forces that would attack believers. This, this new covenant power of the Holy Spirit also resulted in a wide uh, distribution of gifts for ministry to all believers that, that we'll talk about in a few weeks in the book of Ephesians. And, and these gifts are not to be used individualistically, but are meant for the building up of the body of Christ, of one another. As we talked about in our sermon in Ephesians 1, 3-14, it means that the gospel is no longer effectively just limited to the Jews only, but that all races and nations would hear the gospel in power and be united into the church for the glory of God. Thus, the day of Pentecost was a remarkable time of transition in the whole history of redemption because on that day, the Holy Spirit began to function among God's people with new covenant power. Thus, these Christians on the day of Pentecost, as they received this remarkable new empowering from the Holy Spirit, they experienced this because they were living at a time of the transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. Thus, though it wasn't a second experience of the Holy Spirit coming after their conversion, it is not to be taken as a pattern for us, right? Because we're not living at the same time of transition in the work of the Holy Spirit, right? In their case, in the book of Acts, believers with an old covenant empowering from the Holy Spirit became believers with a new covenant empowering from the Holy Spirit. But we today we do not first become believers with a weaker old covenant work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and have to wait until sometime later in the future to receive a new covenant work of the Spirit. Rather, we're in the same position as those who became Christians in the life of the church of Corinth. Right? When we become Christians, we are all baptized, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, into one spirit, into one body. Right? Just as the Corinthians were, and just as the new believers in many churches who were converted where Paul uh, traveled on his missionary journals, journeys, among whom we might add, we never see the special events recorded in the book of Acts in this time of transition even mentioned as a normative experience for the Christians in the rest of the New Testament. Not even the book of Ephesians that we're talking about right now. We don't, we don't see this anywhere in the book of Ephesians, right? In, in this, this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, it, it was really interesting even in the book of Acts. That phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is not used in Acts chapter 8 or 10 or 19, Thus, while the baptism in the Holy Spirit certainly did happen in Acts chapter 2, we remember that this event happened because they were living at a unique point in history and that this event in their lives is not a pattern that we see expected or even told to imitate anywhere in the New Testament. So, so just in looking at those seven instances of the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, we see through this little study that this phrase in the New Testament authors, the way that they used to speak of baptism in the Holy Spirit, they, they use this phrase to speak of coming into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit. And then for the Corinthians, that seventh example, as well as for us, we can conclude this happened at our conversion. But, but we might still wonder about these events in the book of Acts, right? That, that seem like there is maybe some sort of a second blessing that happened, right? Whether or not we want to refer to it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit or not, like, like for example, Acts chapter 8, like, what is happening there? I mean, there clearly was a second experience where they had a genuine faith in Philip's preaching and they were baptized, but but then they had the apostles come down and lay hands on them, so they received the Holy Spirit. So, boom, gotcha, boss. A second experience happened. So, so don't call it a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I get that, but, but what do you do with that, man? Well, that's a great question. In examining this event, we, what we see is something really profound happening. Now, and if we remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about how the greatest problem in the early church wasn't a lack of buildings or the continual onslaught of, onslaught of, of persecution. It was not buildings or persecution. The greatest problem was what to do with having Jews and Gentiles in the same church together, right? Because the Jews are the chosen people of God. They have the covenants and the laws. Moses was their prophet. David, their former king. They have all these promises of God. But the Gentiles, they were not God's chosen people. That's the marked difference. Right? The Gentiles are not God's chosen people. The Jews 
are. So the Gentiles are as far away from God as the Jews were supposed to be close to God. Thus, in examining Acts chapter 8, a better understanding of this event would be that God, in his providence, sovereignly wanted to give the new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans, which, by the way, are these dirty half-breeds we know from history. And he does this directly through the hands of the apostles so that it might be evident to the highest leadership of the Jerusalem church that these Samaritans are not second-class citizens. They're not God's plan B. Nope, they are full members of the church. Now, this was important because of their historical animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, and because Jesus had specified that the spread of the gospel would be the next major step after it had been preached in Jerusalem and Judea, that it would go into the Samaritans. We see that in Acts chapter 1-8. Thus, the event in Acts chapter 8 is kind of like a Samaritan Pentecost. It's a special outpouring of the Spirit on the people of Samaria so that it might be evident to all that the full covenantal blessings and power of the Holy Spirit had come upon this group of people as well. It was not just confined to the Jews only, which, which is a big deal in the book of Acts, right? It, and, and really in the, in the early church. Thus, Acts chapter 8 is not a pattern for us to repeat today. It's simply part of the transition point between this old covenant experience of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. And you can say, okay, well, what about Acts chapter 10? Well, the situation in Acts chapter 10 is less complicated because it's not even clear that Cornelius was even a genuine believer before Peter came and preached the gospel to him. Certainly, he had not trusted in Christ for salvation. Rather, he's a Gentile who's just one of the first examples of the way in which the gospel would go to the end of the earth. Now, in, in Acts chapter 19, once again, remember we encountered that situation where there's some people who had who had not really heard the gospel of salvation through Jesus. We, we, we just talked about that a little bit earlier in this episode. Right? They had heard John the Baptist preach or heard about his sermons and been baptized into that baptism as a sign that they're repenting of their sins and preparing for the Messiah who was to come. But, but they had certainly not heard of Christ's death and resurrection, for they had not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul had to explain to these guys that John preached uh, about the coming of someone after him, namely Jesus. Therefore, these disciples in Ephesus did not have a new covenant understanding or new covenant faith. And certainly they did not have the sign of the new covenant, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Thus they were disciples of John, but they had never heard of the Messiah. Because when they heard of Jesus and believed upon him, then they were baptized and then received the power of the Holy Spirit that was appropriate to the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus. Now because of this, these disciples at Ephesus are certainly not a pattern for us today either. For we do not first have a faith in a Messiah that we're waiting for and then later come to learn that Jesus has already come and lived and died and risen again. Rather, we come into an understanding of the gospel of Christ immediately and we, like the Corinthians, enter immediately into the new covenant experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, there are no New Testament texts that, that encourage us to, to seek for a second experience called a baptism in or with the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion. Now, maybe up to this point, you're tracking with this whole conversation, right? It makes sense. We've examined the biblical texts and we've studied what the Bible actually says about that phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe you are convinced that this phrase, as is commonly used in Winnipeg today, is being used wrongly, right? Because it cannot refer to an experience after conversion that increases our joy, our affection for God, or our adoration of God in our Bible reading, or, or deeper times of worship and exuberance and praising God. Thus, thus, whatever experiences we've had where we've grown in our affection and desire for the Lord cannot be characterized by that phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, because that's not what the phrase means. Okay, but... You've experienced seasons of life where you felt ignited in your passions for God, where you can't get enough of your Bible reading, where you're putting to death the sins in your life with gusto and you're sharing the gospel and it's fun and exciting and God is moving. And there are times where you've, you have this deep, deeper hunger for God, this longing for him that seems greater than ever before. And these deep times of, of communion with God and worship that are unexplainable apart from a special work of God in your life. And so what do we what do we do with that? How do we biblically explain these times in our lives? And so how do the New Testament authors talk about this? 
what what biblical expressions or or teaching in the Bible point us to this kind of work of the Holy Spirit in our lives after conversion? Well, an even more uh, commonly used term in the New Testament is, is that phrase we talked about earlier, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this isn't just semantics, by the way. This is this is really important that we're using the Bible's vocabulary to talk about the experiences that we have in our lives as Christians. We, we are people of the book. We, we want the book to dictate what we say, how we think about God, how we think about our lives, how we think about our relationship with God. And this, this is really important. This, this is what the New Testament authors, they use this phrase, being filled with the Spirit. And because of its frequent use in contexts that speak of Christian growth and ministry, this seems to be the best term to use to describe these genuine experiences that we walk through in the course of our lives. Right, so, so for example, we're in Ephesians. We'll look at Ephesians together. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells the Ephesians, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, now, at first blush, that seems strange. You might not understand how being filled with the Spirit is the opposite of being filled with the drunkenness. <laughs> These are my options. Uh, that seems strange. Right? But, but it, it's important to know that in the Ephesian context, one of the ways that the Ephesians participated in the worship of their demons, the way they had communion with God, would be that they would get drunk. Right? Someone, who, who, uh, someone believed that they would be more spiritually attuned in those times of, of drunkenness. So to commune with God, they would get drunk. Now what Paul is telling these Ephesians is that they are not to, not to worship God like that. You, you, don't, you don't worship God through drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. Rather, you're not, so don't, be, don't be filled with wine that's debauchery, sinfulness. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. Or, or as Wayne Grudem explains, it could be translated, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That helps us understand what that, that we shouldn't think of this filling, like being filled with the Spirit, like a, like a glass cup, right, that's being filled, because a glass cannot continually be filled, or else it would just spill all over the place and we'd have a huge mess. Uh, I have small kids, that happens all the time. So that's that's not that's not a great that's that's a definition of, of being filled, but but a better word picture of this uh, idea of being filled by the Spirit with the Spirit would be, as John MacArthur explains, to think of how the sail of a sailboat is being continuously filled with the wind, filling the sails, and what does that do? It propels it forward. So Paul writes, "Be filled like that." with the Spirit. Not with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, now, how do these Christians then obey this command to be filled? Right? Especially because upon just further exploration of the vocabulary used, you see that that's like a, it, it, it's a passive voice, right? Be filled. It's a passive voice. It's something done to you, right? You, you need to be filled. It doesn't say fill yourself, but it says be filled with the Spirit. So you're, you're passive in this filling, right? In the way that the sails of a boat, they're, they're passive in their filling. They're just there. They get filled, right? And, and yet this is, also, this is also a command. We need to be filled. So be filled. And, and how, how are we commanded then, you might wonder, how are we commanded to do something that we're unable to do? <laughs> Well, thankfully, he who commands us to be filled is also the one who fills us. Praise God. Thus, any season of spiritual fruitfulness, any sanctification that we experience, all the deep joys and intimate communion with God is to the praise of his grace and kindness towards us. And if we look a little bit earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we see that this verse is in the section of the letter where Paul is um, he, he's giving some in indicatives, some things that these Ephesians must do. And he tells them they are not to walk as unwise, but as wise. And to purchase the time because the days are evil. 
So purchasing the time because that that's the wise thing to do. The days are evil. They are unwise. And so they're not to be foolish because that isn't wise. Rather, they, they need to understand the will of the Lord. That's, that's wisdom. And they don't need to give themselves to excessive sinfulness like drunkenness and the worship of God in improper ways. That's not wise. So rather than being influenced by alcohol or demons or spirits, they're to be filled with the Spirit. And the verses then go on to give us five modifying participles, it, which are this. If, if you look uh, right after that <laughs> in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, um, if you look right after verse 18, you'll see that the verses uh, go on. There's five modifying participles, and they are these. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Two, singing. Three, making melody. So, so the first three of these things are kind of singing-related, praise-related. And we see the command to do this with our heart. Right, That's important because it's it's out of a heart posture of praise to God. It's not just a, a commanded, and so we do it even though we don't want to. It's, it's rather, it's the direction of our hearts when they've been transformed by God. So the evidences are this way. We, we sing out of our hearts. Out of our hearts, this, this melody comes. We, it makes its way onto our lips, demonstrates. We praise God, which then also, fourthly, we give thanks to God. And then, fifthly, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the question is, are these participles, all those things that, that I just mentioned, are they the means by which we are filled by the Spirit? Right? So, so if we aren't being filled, do we just need to sing more? Right? Do we, is, is, the, is the remedy to lackadaisical Christianity or, or a slump in your Christian life singing loud for all to hear? Is that what produces godly cheer? You just sing more or just practice gratitude more or submit to one another more. And by doing those things, then, then we will be filled by the Spirit. So the question is, is Paul giving us a list of things to do? And if we do them, then we are guaranteed to be filled by the Spirit? Or, or let me ask it this way. Are, are these practices, these practices of, of, of uh, addressing one another in hymns and in, uh, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody and giving thanks and submitting to one another, are those the coins? If we put those five coins into the, divine vending machine of called God that we will be awarded with this filling presence of the Spirit in our lives? Is that what Paul's saying? And I would say no. Paul, Paul's not giving us these practices that strong-arm God into doing what he has commanded us to do through his word. Rather, these are the overflow of the wind in the sails. They're the overflow of the wind in this. It's what It's what... As God's presence in our lives moves us along, moves the boat of our lives, pushes, pushes and pulls us into godliness, into sanctification, it overflows in, into the evidences of, of being filled by the Spirit are into praising God with all of our hearts and thanking Him as as, as we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing and, and, then, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, so that, that's more of what we see happening in this section of Ephesians 5. And so we, we might wonder, well, then you still haven't answered the question, then, then how are we filled by the Spirit in the book of Ephesians? How, how are we filled by... If it's not by doing these things, then, then how are we filled by the Spirit? To answer that question... Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Now, it's a little earlier in the letter. It's, it's what Nino just preached this past weekend. And what we see in this section is monumental for understanding how Paul prays for these saints. It's monumental. We have here Paul praying for these saints. And what does he specifically pray for? Specifically, he prays that God the Father may give them Give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, the knowledge of God. So that God the Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, ha having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, 
that they might know what is the hope to which he has called them and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, in the local congregation before their very eyes, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So one of the clear clear things that we see from this passage is Paul's prayer to the Father that he might give in greater ways the active working of the Spirit in their midst, right? They're Christians. We already know they are baptized in the Holy Spirit because they're Christians. So the Spirit is indwelling them already as Christians. He is their earnest, the guarantee that they belong to Christ. You can look back uh, a little bit further up into the book of Ephesians and see that. He's their earnest. He's the one who's sealed them. So, so Paul is praying, asking the Lord, not to, that they might be baptized in the Spirit, Rather, they would be, they would be what? They would be given the, the spirit of, of wisdom and of revelation in the, in the knowledge of God. So, so Paul is praying, asking the Lord to let them manifestly experience the, the spirit powerfully at work in their lives as Christians. To the end that, the goal that they might have wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's the first thing that Paul prays for, is this filling, this experiential overflow of the Spirit to be at work in their lives as the Father sends the Spirit to do this, which would then increase their knowledge of God, that their, their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, right? They, they can already see, that they, the eyes of, of their hearts have already been enlightened, they, they are, have already been opened. Right? They, they can already see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ because the Spirit is at work in their lives. He's chased away the spiritual blindness and given them new sight. Right? They can already see, but Paul asks that the Father would send the Spirit to enlighten their eyes even further so that, to the end that, they might know what is the hope to which he has called them, to be, to be reminded of the hope of Christ eternally and in this life that they might walk around with this hope ever before them on their minds and they might know the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints and the greatness of his power towards us. So, so what we see here is prayer to God, asking him for this filling of the Spirit is what Paul asks for these saints. Thus, how are we filled filled by the Spirit? We're only filled by the Spirit as the, the Father sends the Spirit to fill us. Thus, it is right for us as Christians to ask God for this, right? For ourselves and those within our church. See, that is why this prayer of Paul is such a beloved prayer of the saints over the years, because we see a model of how we can pray these things to God and ask him for these things. So, so let me get super practical. If, if our prayer lives or our worship life or our enjoyment and communion with God, if they are lacking, the first thing that we can do is active. We can plead, petition, Ask God the Father to give us the spirit of wisdom. We can ask the Father for a move of the Spirit in our lives so that we might have a greater knowledge of Him, that we might see Him for who He is and love Him more as a result. So we can, we can actively ask Him to do something in us to fill us so that we might know him more. Well, this is important. We are, we are passive in the fulfillment of the prayer. We cannot fill ourselves with the Spirit. But, but, so we're passive in that, but we're active in prayer. We're asking God for this. Again, we see that exact same idea in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19 in the prayer that Paul has for spiritual strength. Right? So Paul is in prison. He asks the Ephesians not to lose heart over what he is suffering for them. And 
it is for this reason that he bows his knee before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, that, that he may grant these Ephesians to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. So Paul is asking that the Ephesians might experience the power of the Spirit in their inner being to the end that they they might have power and that Christ may experientially, manifestly dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, again, we know that Christ is already dwelling in their hearts by faith. They are Christians. They are Christians. But Paul, they're, they're saints. They're the holy ones of God. They have the Spirit as their earnest. He He's their seal. They belong to God. But Paul is praying that these Christians might experientially know the realities of that which is true already, that they might be strengthened and not discouraged and not lose heart. Rather, they might have strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ, and they might be filled with all the fullness of God. Thus, in Ephesians 5, we have this continuation of these kinds of prayers of Paul throughout this letter so far, and and as he's, he's praying, these Ephesians wouldn't walk in an unwise manner. Rather, they would be filled by the Spirit. Likewise, we can pray this for our own lives and, and for one another as Christians, and, and we ought to. This is the kind of prayers that, that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. These are the kind of prayers that Christians have prayed for for ourselves and for one another throughout the thousands of years of of being Christians, having God's word, we, we can cry out to God and ask him to fill us with the Spirit that we might grow in our knowledge of the Father, that we may experientially and manifestly have Christ dwelling in our hearts so that we're rooted and grounded in love and that we might be so filled by the Spirit, the fullness of God, and that this would be repeatedly happening to us as Christians and leading us in the overflow, the overflow of this into worship and thankfulness and so that Christ is glorified in all of our relationships. And so we ought to be, we are commanded to cry out to God and ask him to fill us with the Spirit and to fill us with faith, right? As Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? This is why we, this is why we read our Bibles, right? We, we do so because the word of Christ is powerfully used by the Spirit to give us faith that we may know the Father and root us in Christ because when we look at the word we see Christ. And when we see Christ in the scriptures, as every story whispers his name, points us to him, reminds us of the gospel, faith is awakened. And through that faith flows the Spirit as he is the one who illuminates Christ from the text and convicts us of our sin, right? That we're sinners so that we can repent of these sins and turn to Christ and glorify the Father. So if we, if we want to be we're longing to be filled with the Spirit, greater communion with God, greater worship of God, greater thankfulness to Him, then it starts with, with knowing Him. It starts with us asking God for this, to fill us with the Spirit. We need to be a people who get into His words, so we can get into into us. And and I don't know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I'm guessing it has. Have you ever, have you ever wanted to know the Lord better? To to be filled by the Spirit? To have these wonderful times of sweet communion with God? But then you, you wake up and you go to, to read your Bible and you just feel that your soul is just this, just, your soul is just apathetic. It's tired and bored, it's apathetic, doesn't want to read. In, in that moment, you wake up, you, you get your coffee, you try to read your Bible, you don't want to read. 
In that moment, what do you do? Do you say, well, I, I just don't want to read my Bible, and if I read it, I'm just going to be doing it out of duty, and so I'm not going to do it today because I don't want to be a legalist. No. No, you don't. In that moment, in that moment, we remember that none of our hearts naturally are inclined to the testimonies of God, and so we come armed into our Bible reading with Psalm 119.36. Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to your testimonies. This would be a great thing to write and maybe on the front little page of your Bible. God, incline my heart to your testimonies. Psalms 119, 36. Incline my heart. That means we're asking God to make us want his testimonies. To, to move in our affections as we open his word. Because apart from him inclining our hearts to his testimonies, our hearts will never be inclined towards them. They will only be turned away from them. So we pray, incline our hearts to your testimonies, and then we start reading. And when we start reading, if we, if we read through and we just don't seemingly see anything of value or anything at all, do, do we just give up and move on with our day? No. No. In that moment, we pray again, armed again with God's word, reminding our fickle hearts that what we are doing is too precious to give up on so easily. It's pure gold. It's honey to our lips, and we know that. And so we cry out once again, armed with scriptures like Psalm 119, verse 18, which I, I think I pray every day, which says, God, open my eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your law. Please, God, God, help me to know you better. Ground me in your love. Let me have the strength to comprehend with all the saints your love that surpasses all knowledge. Fill me with your fullness, God. Open my eyes. Let me behold wondrous things in your law. And we pray these things. God loves to answer these kind of prayers as we sit and ask him and then dive back into his word. And he provides for us so that we may know him more and so that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts through faith. And if we're still, after all of that, just apathetic, here's another thing I pray. I confess my heart to God. I ask him to change me further still. I use scriptures again, like Psalm 90 verse 14. I pray, I ask God that he might satisfy us in the morning. Satisfy me, God, in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Satisfy me. Satisfy me, God. And so, so it's appropriate to understand that this filling with the Holy Spirit isn't this, this one-time event that happens in our lives. Rather, this is an event. This is... This is a communion with God that God intends to occur over and over again in our lives as Christians. This is something that we as Christians ought to ask God for over and over and over again for us and for our church, that we may be continually being filled with the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, just like those sails in a sailboat, that we might continue to see God empower us for good works that he's prepared for us to walk in, that we might have greater experiences of evangelism and seeing the gospel go out from our lips into the world around us. And we might expect for God to be at work in people's lives, believing that God wants to use our lives and our lips to share with them and draw them to himself. And that's my prayer for our church, that we might continually be filled with the Spirit. Now, now, before we wrap up this episode, I, I want to close by sharing two warnings that, that Wayne Grudem shares in his Systematic Theology book. And the first warning has to do with any sort of teaching that there are two different classes of Christians, right? Maybe a belief that there's kind of ordinary believers and then those who are spirit-filled believers. Now, I'm I'm assuming at this point in our conversation that you understand the folly of that distinction. But, but let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf because, because the moment that someone claims here there's a second blessing, as many of my Pentecostal friends and family members claim, 
As soon as they claim there's a second blessing, then the natural question amongst Christians is, well, have you experienced this second blessing? And if you have, you're in. But if you haven't, you're out. You aren't living the victorious, spirit-filled life while, while I am. Or I'm jealous of you because you have it and I don't. Thus, you create two classes, one on the outside, who needs to get into the inside, and the inside group. It's just happy that they're in. Then even while those who teach the classical Pentecostal view of baptism in the Holy Spirit may deny that they are attempting to divide Christians into these two categories, such a division is implicit every single time they ask whether someone has been baptized in the Holy Spirit or not. And so such a question strongly suggests there are two groups of Christians, those who have had this experience and those who have not. And I think it's incredibly detrimental, and it's unbiblical. But, but let's say you're not classical Pentecostal. If you've been around Christianity a while, then you know that these two kinds of distinctions don't just happen in Pentecostal circles. For example, maybe you've been part of churches or discussions where you've separated Christians into two camps in your mind. Right? Either the ordinary believers or the sanctified believers. Or the ordinary believers and those who are disciples of Jesus, the actual followers of Jesus. Maybe carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. Now, the Bible, the Bible makes no distinctions like this. And so we should be really careful not to do so either. There is no two-level or two-class Christianity. In fact, nowhere in the epistles do we read of Paul or Peter telling a church that is having problems that the solution to their problem is that they all need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That doesn't, that doesn't happen anywhere. And nowhere do we hear of the risen Lord speaking to the troubled and weak churches, like in Revelation 2, 3, chapter 2, chapter 2 and 3, for example. We never hear Jesus say, the main problem is you need to just ask me to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And if so, everything would be fine. So, so it's, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the two-level view taught by all of these groups throughout history does not have a solid foundation in the New Testament itself. So that's the first warning. The second warning for us is simply this. There are many degrees of empowering fellowship with God and personal Christian maturity within our church. In fact, this happens within all churches, and that's to be expected, right? Just as some of us are more mature emotionally than others, just in our church, like we have, we have babies and teenagers and middle-aged people and elderly members, right? Having, having physical differences in maturity, so we can also expect in the life of our church that we'll have different levels of Christian maturity and sanctification. Some might have increasing closeness in fellowship in their, in their walk with God. And others, others might have greater increases and experiences of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives and ministries. And, and this is to be expected. None of us are on the same, in the same growth trajectory. The, the, the Christian life should be one of growth in every area of life, and, and our growth will be gradual and, and progressive. Maybe little spurts here, little spurts there, but gradual and progressive, lasting our entire lives as we continually always grow into maturity. Thus, if you're further along than another brother or sister in Christ or not as far along as you wish you would be, remember that we are all in this journey of growth and, and pray, asking God for spiritual maturity, conviction over sins, and an ever-growing hunger for Him. And if we're looking for some good prayers to begin praying and asking God to fill us with His Spirit, these prayers in Ephesians are great places to start. As for me, the, they are making up kind of the majority of my prayers for us as we are in the book of Ephesians in this season, and I would greatly commend them to you as well. If you are newer to prayer, unsure of what to pray for yourself and one another as members, as we are covenanting to pray for one another and to equip one another as fellow saints, these would be great prayers. So look at these prayers and see how you might even pray them for yourself and your family, your small group, our church, us as pastors. Pray for one another and, and use God's word to do that. It's, it's these great prayers that are for us. And so with that, that's all we have for this episode of Basecamp. Thanks for tuning in, sticking it out with me. And I'm praying that this material has been incredibly helpful to you in some of these conversations. In this week's episode, we covered a lot of and, and relied really heavily on Wayne Grudem's material in chapter 39 of his classic work, Systematic Theology. And then also we uh, examined a lot and looked at, whether you knew it or not, uh, a lot of John Piper's look at the book where he covers uh, Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. 
And I would highly recommend either of those resources for further study. So thanks again for tuning into this episode of Basecamp, part of the training ministry here at the Trails, as we seek to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. Till next time.